Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. And joining me for a very special edition of Paul Listening Behind the Curtain is a playwright I respect, and he's an actor, he's everything, but I respect so very much coming to us from his home in New York. Douglas Wright joins me for good reason because he has one of the best plays going on here in Chicago right now that uh, I've seen on a Chicago stage in years. And Doug, I said that when you weren't listening to me. Um, (laughs) Good night, Oscar is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been thrilling to be at the Goodman with the show. So good night, Oscar. Now, I, I talked to, to Sean. I know him not greatly well, but I, but I know him and visited with him uh, after opening night. And I figured, well, this is a Doug Wright play and you had the idea and you wrote it. And, and uh, you know, you went to Sean and said, hey, you'd be good for this. That's not exactly the road to this play. That's exactly right, Paul. Uh, I had written a screenplay about George Gershwin. uh, And uh, uh, of course, you can't research the life of George Gershwin without encountering Oscar Levant, who was one of his very dearest friends. And so I knew about Oscar and had written him in a supporting role in this screenplay. Uh, Sean heard that there was an imminent movie uh, that included the role of Oscar, and it was one he'd always wanted to play. So he had makeup tests and did an all-out pitch and sent an audition tape to the estimable Mr. Spielberg, who was the director of that project at the time. And uh, the response to Sean's uh, uh, tape was extremely enthusiastic. But then, regrettably, uh, the movie never happened, which is not all that infrequent for Hollywood. Hollywood, but uh, I did walk away with the knowledge of Oscar Levant, and Sean uh, walked away with an increased appetite to play him. So he approached a mutual friend of ours, a, a producer named Beth Williams, and asked if she would possibly commission a play about Levant. And uh, Sean didn't know me, and I didn't know him. And by pure coincidence, she came to me, and I said, I've encountered Oscar. I I wrote him as a small supporting role in a screenplay. I'd love to write a full-length play about him. Uh, Sean and I met, uh, and uh, we hit it off immediately, and our vision of Oscar matched. And it wasn't until about a year ago that uh, he put two and two together and realized I was actually the author of the original screenplay that started all this madness. But it was very much a co-conspiracy between Sean and myself to bring this play to the stage. So am I right? I thought he or maybe when you and I talked at the party that part of the story was that you guys were at dinner or lunch or something. And, and that's where this discussion happened. And that's where you said, well, I am the right person because I had written this screenplay. Did that come out over a, a meal between you two? You know, we did ha- have a sort of blind date lunch set up by our producer friend, Beth, uh, but I didn't mention the movie at that time. And it wasn't until sometime later that Sean did the math and said, oh, my God, you wrote the screenplay that's that's started my, my fascination. So uh, so it was just a really fortuitous uh, uh, chain of events. So as you wrote, the, as you wrote the, the, the play. I mean, knowing that or at some point knowing Sean Hay steps into this, of course, you're dealing with somebody who is iconic in the role in his past uh, from Will and Grace and even other roles that he's done. Promises, Promises, The Three Stooges. Right? There's all this sort of Jerry Lewis. They're all this light sort of stuff, mostly. And now he steps into something that in many ways is anything but. Was that a challenge for you as a writer? Because 
I mean, for example, when he walks on stage, he's going to get the star applause. And I know in talking with Lisa Peterson, your director, you were very concerned about saying, we are not going to lose control of this play by having an audience applaud for Jack from Will and Grace. <laughs> well, you know, in all candor, uh, when Beth first asked me to consider writing a play for Sean, I thought, well, that's certainly unusual casting. I don't know if that's going to work uh, uh, because I didn't have an encyclopedic sense of what Sean could do. But when we had that fateful lunch, he started to talk about Oscar and how he might play him. And he said, I think I'll adopt some of his physical mannerisms. And he hunched his body in a certain way and started to gesticulate in Oscar fashion. And he said, and I think I'll adopt some of his signature vocal tics. And he started to talk like Oscar. And over lunch, he transformed into the man. And, and when I saw that, I realized that this was an actor who as beloved as he has been on uh, television for his remarkable run as Jack, is really, I believe, one of the great actors of the American stage and has an ability to transform himself in ways that audiences don't expect at all. And watching him do that has been really joyous. And, you know, given that we're coming to the end of the run, I don't feel bad about giving things away. Uh, and by that, I mean that in this show, of course, Oscar Levant plays Rhapsody in Blue, which makes sense. We even have George Gershwin in this show. You've weaved him into this in a, in a, in a very interesting way. Um, and of course, we actually all got an email from the PR people after opening night said, don't tell people the truth as to whether Sean is playing or not. Now, those of us who know him from here know he's a concert pianist. But let me ask you, did you know he was a concert pianist? And how, how critical was it for you to say, I need to have a, a number in this show and let it be Rhapsody in Blue? And Sean told me a bit about that. It, might, it was almost something else. Yes. Uh, well, when Sean and I initially met, he uh, explained to me that he had been a really gifted prodigy since the age of five and had thought often of a serious concert career, but then found success as an actor first, uh, but never let his skills at the piano languish. And so he said, uh, if you write the play, uh, don't be afraid to ask me to play something as part of the narrative because I can do it. And so uh, I got very excited by that. And I knew that it would have to function as a kind of climactic moment in the piece. And originally we toyed with uh, Gershwin's concerto in F, right. but ultimately we decided that the Rhapsody is so well known. And also it's such an emotive and powerful piece of music. And when Sean plays it as Oscar, uh, it's not just a man playing a piano. It's a man at war with the piano, at war with the music, and at war with himself. And so Sean brings a kind of uh, uh, emotional brio to the piece. It's been, the, the piece is so well known that it's been kind of relegated at this point to the theme for United Airlines or elevator music. Yeah, I, I was and, just about to say, this is a great way to get United to be a sponsor of the play now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's beautiful is when, when we know so many versions of it, Sean really gives it all the fury and all the fire that audiences must have experienced the very first time they heard it. And, and by the way, so Oscar Levant was known for this number, one of the great recordings of Rhapsody in Blue. How close is this to, because uh, I don't know that, how close is this to Oscar's version? Well, in truth, uh, working with our musical director, Chris Fennick, uh, uh, Sean and Chris scaled the piece from 20 minutes all the way down to seven. So it's a very attenuated piece, but it has all of the uh, melodic highlights. And uh, there's a, uh, an orchestra that comes in uh, near the last movement uh, to give it added theatricality. 
And I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, that's actually a recording we made with Chicago's own youth orchestra. Oh, yay. And, wow. Uh, it was fantastic. Some of those remarkable young musicians were, you know, 14 and 15 years old. They were smaller than the instruments they were holding. But, <laughs> but they play it with uh, such uh, remarkable skill. And so uh, uh, I was just incredibly pleased to be affiliated with that organization, even in a small way. And by the way, in, in my interview with the cast, including um, Emily Burgle, who plays June Levant, and one of the amazing things that I really loved, and so in terms of developing these characters, because it's about Oscar, of course, and by the way, I can't tell you how many people who I've talked to thought Oscar Levant was a fictional character. That, that's how uh-huh. old we are, uh, or certainly I am, and I think, no, he was real, but Jack Parr, people know, and, and some don't if they're young, but um, with regarding June Levin, I have to say, Emily called me after the interview, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, and she said, I just want to thank you, she said, because of the interviews I've done, you're the first person who referred to me as June Levant, and not Oscar's wife, and of course, uh-huh. I said, why would anybody do otherwise, but of course, the point is, you know, she can get sort of shadowed by all of that, and in my view, you've developed a really fine and, and, and complete character in June Levant. Oh, I so deeply appreciate your saying that, Paul, because that was certainly a goal. June is the only female voice in the play. She's uh, a one character among a total of seven and the only female. So I very much wanted her to have a strong voice. And I think there could have been no Oscar without June. He couldn't have functioned. And of course, like many of uh, the women in her era did, she made extraordinary sacrifices on behalf of her husband, sometimes to her own detriment. She had had a film career herself. Her own TV show. Her own TV show. Uh, She was uh, a remarkably talented, articulate, a uh, ferociously funny woman. And uh, so uh, she really, uh, o- Oscar took a pound of flesh from everyone he interacted with. And June was no exception. And I think she's in many ways, the unsung hero of the piece. And of course you place this on the Jack Parr show. Jack Parr, I mean, more people maybe know Steve Allen or Jack, certainly Johnny Carson, I get that. But certainly I remember Jack Parr. Um, and by the way, Ben Rappaport, who plays him, did, did admit to us uh, in the interview that the, the, the uh, dimple was drawn in, not real, uh, <laughs> which Jack had, but very well known for that. Actually, in my, I have a signed book collection. I have signed books from Jack Parr and from Oscar Levant and, oh. and all that. So, yeah, I, I got to come visit. But, but anyway, um, but my understanding from Sean, don't think I'm giving anything away, but Sean said, while these are true events, which everybody wants to know, it didn't happen on the Jack Parr show. It happened on the quiz show, but you placed it on Jack Parr because it would resonate more. That's exactly right. Uh, in truth, Oscar was shooting a show called Words and Music in Los Angeles, and uh, he had a, a show to do on live television, and his wife had uh, necessarily committed him to uh, the mental ward at Mount Sinai, and the producers did get a four-hour pass so that he could tape the show. And I thought that was a wonderful incident in his life, because whenever you're telling uh, the story of uh, a historical figure, you can't tell it from cradle to grave. And I'm fond of finding one key incident in that life that uh, helps illuminate, uh, you know, all uh, 80 years of Oscar's existence. And I felt like that night told the story. But because words and music has largely been forgotten, I did transpose the event to the Jack Parr show, in part because Oscar was a signature guest of Parr's and one of his personal friends. So it felt like there was a lot of juice there for drama. So, So I've certainly taken that liberty. 
You should have had Jack walk off that night, build another famous. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So um, in talking to a friend last night on the phone and gloating about my talking to you today, he asked, and I said, I will ask you, how much of, of the lines that we heard, I mean, how much of those are Doug Wright's uh, in, in imagination writing them? And how much did Oscar really say? I, you know, it's funny. I confess to very few people, so I should not say this on a podcast, but I'm an, an insecure and neurotic enough writer that I keep a running tab. How many laughs is Oscar getting and how many laughs is Doug getting? But uh, in truth, it's a, it's a pretty rich mix. And of course, uh, Oscar was an extraordinary wit. And so many, many of the great laughs in the show are signature things that he said. But of course, when you're writing a, a, a full length play about the man, you have to invent on his behalf. So I did a fair share of that, too. And I will be brash and say that uh, while I don't always pour over reviews, I was flattered to read a few that came out of Chicago, like Chris Jones, of course, and uh, the Sun-Times. And I was a bit delighted when, in fact, uh, they attributed some of my remarks to Oscar, which I took as high praise, because if I can emulate the man and be anywhere near as funny as he is, then uh, I've caught some whiff of his spirit. What a great reaction to have, by the way, rather than, oh, I'm offended. They, they didn't realize I could write that, you know, is that you fooled them, uh, which is really good. And, you know, one other clarification, whatever, in the role of Alvin, who is the uh, uh, sort of the uh, medical assistant, the orderly who, who joins him for the medication. Am I right in assuming that originally that role was a doctor, but perhaps because of wanting to integrate casting a bit? Because I don't know that in the 1950s that there, that, that situation with an African-American doctor would have been realistic. You're absolutely right, Paul. I was uh, at first loath to create a black orderly. I worried that was the kind of functionary character that all too often populated particularly white plays and that to write uh, the role of an African-American man whose sole function was to take care of a more privileged white one was uh, uh, something I wanted to avoid. We've seen too much of that. Uh, but I did my research and I called the chair of the African-American Medical History Association. I called the National Black Nursing Association. I called uh, uh, Cedar sinai in Los Angeles to find out what kind of medical roles would have been available to a promising uh, young Black scholar at that time. And since Oscar was obviously at a white hospital, the only role that Alvin could have held, the only job he would have been granted was as an orderly. So ultimately what I worked to do was be true to history because as the uh, head of the African-American Medical Association said to me, he said, you can't whitewash the struggle that black individuals had entering the medical field. You can't call him a doctor when he couldn't have been at a white hospital. And so I didn't want to do that. And uh, so the challenge then became to make him as rich a character as I could with his own ambitions and his own backstory. And of course, in the uh, extraordinary actor, Tremel Tillman, I had a real ally and I worked very closely with Tremel to make sure that it was a role that he could approach with all of his own rich sense of history intact and, and all of his own prodigious gifts and needs as an actor. So it was a really rewarding experience to work so closely with him to craft that particular role. And all the characters, the, the, the you know, NBC exec, and, the, and of course, even Max, the, uh, the, the gopher of the day, which, by the way, I'm assuming you know this. Did you first come across Ethan Slater? He was a guest of mine on my backstage show when he was doing SpongeBob. I'm assuming that's where you first found him. But my question to you is, did you know that was his first role? 
Uh, you know, I, I did only because uh, Tina Landau is a dear friend who directed ah, okay. that piece. And I had the great privilege of seeing it in Chicago because we were doing War Paint around the corner. And so Ethan uh, stuck in my mind as a really gifted young actor. But then it was his agent who sent him in on a tradition, uh, a regular old fashioned audition. And uh, he was so brilliant in the audition. I just prayed that he'd seize the opportunity to finally play a vertebrate. And uh, thank God he did. He did. So we're so lucky to have him. So let's ship while I have you, Doug. And, you know, I don't ever actually drink coffee during this thing, but I couldn't help myself. Wanting to keep <laughs> I love your cup. Well, I mean, me too. One of my favorites, actually. And uh, I'll buy an Oscar one way when they exist. And, <laughs> uh, so War Paint, you may remember, was not part of the Goodman Theater. It premiered in Chicago, in Chicago with the Goodman before it went to Broadway. And it, it completely um, just overturned the season. But talk to me about what, what is it that brought you to Chicago when War Paint happened and, and led to Goodman upturning its season to go, this is going to, well, I can understand why they would. Uh, no, it was thrilling. And it was all uh, the brainchild of our producer, uh, David Stone, who uh, also works with a fellow producer, Mark Platt. And, uh, and David, Ben Platt. Uh, exactly. Yes. Uh, ben Platt's father. And uh, it was incredible because David had heard of this book, War Paint, uh, by Lindsay Woodhead that uh, chronicled the rivalry between Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. And of course, because David has a brilliant producer's mind, he instantly thought uh, that it would be a great vehicle for two marvelous women of the American stage. And so uh, from the beginning, we crafted it uh, for our leading ladies. And so uh, uh, obviously a new musical is costly and, and, and dangerous to open cold on Broadway. And everyone knows that Chicago is one of the great theater towns in the country and that audiences in Chicago are unusually sophisticated and a good bellwether for how a larger national audience might respond to the work. So there was no question that we wanted to do it in Chicago. And of course, the Goodman is is the premier theater there with, with a wealth of resources and a phenomenal talent on staff. And so it just seemed like a natural marriage. And I don't know all of the machinations that went on between David and Rock Shuford and, 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 and Bob at the Goodman to bring the show there, but I'm just so grateful it happened because it's, uh, it's like uh, taking a show to college before you unleash it into the world, coming to Chicago with it. <laughs> and you know, one thing, although it's been years now, but one thing I can't get out of my head, the color palette, the color palette of those sets, Stuff. Was that in your head in writing? Oh, that your vision? I wish I could say it was. When when Michael Greif, our director, first suggested David Corrins as the set designer, all I could think of was the wonderful but very rough-hewn, wood-colored environment that he created for Hamilton. And I thought, well, that's so deliberately rustic and early America. Can he really bring us the glamour of these salons at the height of the 30s, 40s, and 50s? And of course, I was foolish to worry because David is a genius and Michael Greif knew that. And when I saw his initial renderings for the set, I almost broke down in tears because they were so opulent and so well suited to the show. And let me shift. I'm watching my time. and I, I want five more hours with you. But let me talk about Grey Gardens with you, because one of my ultimate favorites, I became a, a, a cult lover of that show. And as Chicagoans know, one of the, the uh, characters who played Little Edie here in Chicago, Hollis Resnick, one of the finest actresses in Chicago, who I know you know, uh, passed away uh, this past weekend. It, stunning loss for us. And um, actually, yeah, any, anything you just want to say about, about that loss? 
Only that I had the great honor of seeing Hollis do not one but two productions of Grey Gardens. The second, uh, the first, of course, was at the Northlight in Chicago and quite a brilliant production. The second was uh, in Philadelphia, where Lisa Peterson, who's the director of Goodnight Oscar, directed a rendition of Grey Gardens with Hollis again in the leading role. And she's one of the most gifted, well, I hate saying it. She was one of the most gifted and extraordinary actresses that we have, uh, not just in Chicago, but in the nation. And so I was deeply sorry to hear of her passing. It's a real loss to all of us, but I'm so honored that I got to encounter her not once, but twice in my career. But on that show, to broaden out a little bit, you've got this thing. I mean, I may not have time to talk about Quills and just all these other great things. That was one of my first introductions to you was Quills with Jeffrey Rush, the movie and all that. But you have this thing for historic figures. I mean, you, you've write, written things where you create people, but you love history. What, what's the, what, what motivates that? I guess in a way, uh, historical figures are very effective disguises to hide behind. And if you come across a character from history and you relate to them in some fundamental way, uh, they become a kind of safe vessel into which to pour some of your own demons and anxieties and curiosities. And of course, I always uh, uh, balk at saying that or admitting it because uh Oscar Levant and Edie Beale and even the Marquis de Sade are a rather incriminating group of uh, people to feel so strongly bound to. And yet I feel like each of them carries some small part of me. So they were each an invitation for me to seemingly craft a portrait while I was really looking in the mirror. So uh, I think that's why I'm so drawn to them. And Great Gardens was uh, the latest production was going to be here in the Theo Ubuque Theater, which you have, you have not attended in Chicago. Please, when you're here, I'd love to take you there. It's, it's a small, intimate cabaret that puts oh. on performances that could be on Broadway. I mean, they're amazing. Grey Gardens was the performance, and I was invited to record the audio track uh, that gets played in that show, which nobody ever heard because it opened just at pandemic time. Oh, how heartbreaking. It mm. was shut down just immediately after a couple of previews, I think. Um, but, but having said that, in that show, was it part of your design to sort of say we're going to have, hey, the character that plays Little Edie becomes, you know, uh, uh, an older Edie? I mean, you know, all this switching of roles between Act 1 and Act 2. Act 2, by the way, is I mean, Even if some people, I think, leave Act 1 and just go, okay, that's all right. But then Act 2 blows you off here. Yeah, it definitely, it, we take a lot of time setting up Act 2 in Act 1. Uh, so the payoff uh, doesn't really start until the middle of Act 2. But uh, regarding your question, it was, uh, I think, uh, a universally shared idea among Scott Frankel, Michael Corey, and I, that I'm, I'm a fellow authors of that piece, that in so many ways, it's about the codependent, interwoven relationships between parents and children. Uh, we, we were always fond of saying that uh, it's a curious thing that sometimes parents unwittingly inflict wounds on their children, and then they're the very same people who have to bandage and, and, and care for those wounds. And I think that was the relationship between Big Edie and Little Edie. So the idea of having one actress play both mother and daughter uh, to incredibly enmeshed characters just made thematic sense to us. And again, Christine Ebersol back in that show. So, you know, mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. I also have to ask you, I can't ignore I Am My Own Wife, which by the way, with Jefferson Mays, who's a Beyond amazing and all that. Once again, a historical figure. So I'll ask you to talk about it for a moment. But, you know, when I looked at the history of that, reminding myself of when it opened, my memory was it actually, again, pre-Broadway in Chicago. And that was not part of the bio. I know I saw it here. Am I crazy? 
No, you're not crazy at all. And in fact, uh, it, it's it's uh, something that should be uh, corrected whenever the play is written about. I feel strongly about that because it was the About Face Theater yeah. in Chicago that gave us the very first production at the Museum of Contemporary Art and really helped us locate the style and voice of the play. And then it subsequently went to Playwrights Horizons in New York and then to Broadway and then back to Chicago, where once again, my friends at the Goodman were kind enough to host it. So that play is very tied to Chicago. And certainly when I'm asked about it or write about its history, I never exclude my friends at About Face because they really helped us uh, uh, finalize that text. They make such a difference. I support them every year uh, financially. They're just, they do such important work here for the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. Uh, Jefferson Mays, what came first, the play or Jefferson Mays? You know, that play was written for my friend Jefferson at, at a time when all I had were taped interviews with my subject, Charlotte von Malsdorf, a renowned trans person who lived uh, through the Nazis and the communists in East Germany. Uh, and I took uh, uh, Moises and I took Jefferson and a stack of transcript to uh, the Sundance Theater Festival and uh, uh, began to pen the play. So Jefferson was cast before the play was written. I had a chance to work with, uh, well, interview Moises uh, for Paradise Square here in Chicago. Uh -huh. Did you get to come see that? You Why know, you I'm very... Broadway? Regrettably, I have not seen it yet, but I'm so excited it's on Broadway now and that I'll have an opportunity to. Yeah, you're going to love it. Um, okay. And by the way, think of me when the lead sings the song, Burn It Down. Just have me in your head about saying this is one of the most amazing songs you've ever seen. Fabulous. Um, Fabulous. <laughs> um, then The Little Mermaid. I didn't know how to work The Little Mermaid into this thing because <laughs> we've got all this depth and this whatever. With all due respect, love Disney, love Little Mermaid. But kind of like, how did that happen? Well, when I was interviewed for that job, uh, uh, Tom Schumacher, the head of Disney Theatricals, who's a real theatrical wizard himself, uh, said, why would you want to write this? And I <laughs> said, well, I think that the Marquis de Sade and Ursula the Sea Witch have more in common than you want to admit. Fascinating. And uh, I was, uh, like so many, I just fell in love with the animated film and felt that Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's score was one of the best musical theater scores I'd ever heard. It just happened to be on celluloid. And, and so the opportunity to get to know and work with Alan and his, his new lyricist, Glenn Slater, was just a thrilling one. And, and uh, you can't tackle a project or you do so at your peril unless you have a genuine fondness for source material, if there is source material. And, and my love for that movie ran deep and I, I fought hard to get the job. And uh, it was really a, a glorious experience. And as my mother said, it's probably one of the only plays you've ever written that children can actually come see. So uh, that was gratifying too. Oh, these days children can go see everything. So <laughs> did, did you meet Pat Carroll in that process, by the way? On opening night in New York, I got to meet the legendary Pat Carroll, which was also one of the highlights of that experience. I love it. And Alan Menken, that you performed here in a one-man show at the auditorium, uh, I guess just before the pandemic, and I sponsored that that performance oh, at wonderful. the auditorium. It, what a nice guy. Spending a little time after, you know, words with him, having him sign everything I have that's tied to Alan oh. Menken, of course. And um, but but was the so when it was all over? Do you look back and say, hey, I do more Disney, or was it like, no, that's that's a chapter in my life. 
Oh, gosh, I, I, I continue. Uh, uh, Tom Schumacher has in some ways been a real mentor and a real support in my career. And anytime Disney calls, I'll, I, I, I pick up the phone uh, and uh, working with him was a joy. So if uh, again, you know, the material has to be emphatically right yeah. and it has to be something that because you, you live with these projects for sometimes five to 10 years. So the material has to mean an enormous amount to you. Uh, that's the first prerequisite. But uh, but absolutely. I, I just love Tom and it's a great organization. Do you ever collaborate with your husband, David, who I know is also a you know, songwriter? I, I love you're asking that. Uh, we're working on our very first show together, and it's tentatively slated uh, to premiere out at La Jolla under the direction of Christopher Ashley. So uh, we're working away on that. We have another draft due this summer. So it's Can you, it's can you tell me the topic, the subject? It's a little bit unusual for a musical. It's about the radical group, the Weather Underground from the late 1960s and early 70s. Yeah. And it's a musical called How to Build a Bomb. And uh, so it's uh, a rather incendiary piece, but we're very excited about it. Were you it. just curious, were you inspired by all the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin stuff going on? Uh, well, we know that was all going on. Actually, it's a, a, a more fascinating and Baroque story than that. Uh, my husband, David, has always been interested in unusual movements from that moment in history, because uh, believe it or not, his parents uh, were very close friends with another couple a, a, in Indiana when they were in college. And that couple subsequently uh, kidnapped Patty Hearst and founded the SLA. Uh, David's parents were, you know, moderate Republicans. So their own politics were quite different. Uh, but yeah, kidnapping couple, wasn't within their world, I would think. Totally not. And but Bill and Emily Harris, uh, the couple that they fraternized with in college, ultimately took a very dark turn and were responsible for that horrific incident in our history. And so David thought that was a little close to home to write about, but he'd always had a fascination, a mixture of real respect for their activism and their anti-war sentiments and a sense of dismay at some of their tactics. Uh, uh, so he had a longtime fascination with uh, the weather underground. And as he fell into that fabulous wormhole, I followed him. And so it's a script that we hope to finish this summer. Much better story than I had in my head. And, and, uh, <laughs> and by the way, give, given Lin-Manuel's success with you know Hamilton and stuff, and your love of historic figures, can we expect to see Fillmore the musical, uh, you know, based on Millard or, or, or you know, one of the presidential historical things, Thomas Jefferson <laughs> musical coming from you? I think Lynn has staked out that territory quite brilliantly, and I'm not even going to attempt to follow in those footsteps. But uh, I'm sure that I'll continue to write about people I've left from history. It seems unavoidable. Is there a, is there a historic figure that you've looked at now that, and I, again, I know it's asking you to maybe divulge something, but where you've looked and said, one day, I want to address that. Oh, my God, too many. Uh, uh, I don't know if I will or not, because, you know, the bucket list of what I want to write is way too long. Yeah. I'm fascinated by uh, Lainey Riefenstahl and have a play in mind about her, but we'll see. Who knows? All right. And currently, I know that you missed our interview because you were off doing a movie. Can you tell us what anything about the movie that, that is in works? Oh, happily. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. It's uh, uh, Amazon is producing the film. It's directed by a marvelous young female director uh, named Maggie Betts, B-E-T-T-S. And it stars Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx. And it's the story of a very eccentric uh, lawsuit 
that unspooled down in the deep south in Mississippi in the uh, funeral home industry. So I hope that it's mordantly funny. And uh, it also uh, raises questions about race in America, which is a topic very much on everyone's mind at the moment, and how race can sometimes play out in courtroom proceedings. And so it's a stellar cast, and it was a thrilling visit to the set. And uh, I have high hopes. I can't wait to see the film. And we didn't get to standing on ceremony. We didn't get to ha hands on a hard body, which has been performed in Chicago. And that's why I need more time with you. But Doug Wright, I think you can tell how much I admire you and admire oh. your work. You're, you're well, absolutely amazing. I hope the next I, time you, you come in Chicago, I can take you for some deep dish pizza. Oh, and I appreciate it. Well, I know you're the voice of theater in Chicago, so it's such an uh, honor to spend uh, half an hour with you. And I'm so grateful uh, for our chance to talk. Playwright Doug Wright, check him out. If you haven't, you're making a mistake. And if you've missed Goodnight Oscar, well, go to New York and see it on Broadway because uh, that's the best place to see it. Douglas Wright, you're the best. Thank you so much. Congratulations. I watch every step you make. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv and hey don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes and tune in each week to hear more insider scoop coming to you from behind the curtain